study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're on question number 15, the sin by which we fell, by which man fell. In our sermon series, uh, we're looking in, 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 this, uh, in this part of the catechism, we're looking at the part that deals with the covenant of life that God made with us at creation. This covenant was introduced to us in question 12. And then in subsequent questions, the catechism works through how we broke that covenant of life and then what the consequences were for breaking that covenant. It deals with this until we get to question 20, where we're introduced with the covenant of grace, which is the covenant where God promises forgiveness. The covenant of life that we're looking at now is sometimes also called the covenant of works to contrast it from the covenant of grace. It was actually a gracious covenant as well, but it wasn't a gracious covenant in that it was bringing grace and salvation to people who had sinned against God. It was just gracious in that God is gracious toward his creatures when he created them. But because the covenant of grace or covenant of works calls us simply to continue in our allegiance to God, or called us to continue in our allegiance to God for life. So it was based on our faithfulness and our works. That's why it's called the covenant of works. Whereas the covenant of grace calls us to rest upon the works of Christ, our mediator, who is provided by God's grace for our salvation. So we're going to explore in detail this covenant of life and or covenant of works. And then when we get to question 20, we will explore the covenant of grace in detail. And that will go on for some time. Before we get to that covenant, though, we, we have to fully examine what is said about the covenant of life. So let's review the questions that we've already studied about the covenant of life, beginning with question 12, where it's introduced. And we'll recite these together in unison. I'll, I'll um, ask the question and then you answer with me. Question 12. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. You see that perfect obedience is what is called for in this covenant. This was something that Adam and Eve were quite capable of before the fall. All they had to do is simply continue to serve God as their God, as their supreme master, to remain with him, and not to do the one thing that he told them not to do. To eat the forbidden fruit. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were given a whole array of marvelous blessings to enjoy from the hand of our kind and gracious redeemer. Gracious creator, I guess I should say there. And they could easily have continued to enjoy these if they had simply continued to serve God. That was all they needed to do. Question 13 tells us, however, that they did not continue in this wonderful estate in which they were created. Let's do this one together now. Question 13. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents 
being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created, sinning against God. So, in considering this, we read, we read Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 8, and focused in particular on how they acted according to the freedom of their own will in that matter. Though God is sovereign and has ordained all that happens, it is at the same time true that it was 100% their choice that they fell. And, through Satan, and though Satan tempted them, it was still their own free act. God is always 100% sovereign, and we are always 100% free in the sense that we do what we want to do. We looked at that in, in quite a bit of detail. But uh, that's what I focused on with question 13, because I knew that when we got to question 14 and 15, we would look at sin and what the sin was by which we fell. So rather than looking at it at that time, we looked particularly at the freedom of our will. And now we'll, we'll be looking at the, uh, more about this passage today. We're going to have the same, um, same scripture reading. But uh, last week... We did question 14, which is between uh, question 13 and 15, of course. And uh, question 14 is, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. With this question, I spoke to you about what sin is in its essence. How it is a transgression of the law of God. For it to occur at all... Man had to cast off God as God, rejecting his authority as his Lord and Master. A rejection of him as God is really what it boiled down to. The sins we commit could never occur if we had not first cast him off as our God. And now that we are redeemed, the sins we continue to commit are rooted in that initial rebellion. Although if we are truly born again, we're not capable of sinning in the way that we did in the garden of casting off God as our God. Because sin no longer has dominion over us. It's no longer our master. Jesus Christ is our Lord. It is the remnants of the old man of the flesh that remain. Our remaining corruption that acts when we sin as those who believe. But God is still our God. We don't cast him off as our God. We have sin because of that being done originally, and we still have the remains of that corruption in us that we fight with. But never again, if we have been born again, will we cease to have God as our God. So uh, we looked at that sin and those, those aspects of sin. The great sin is when you cast God off as your God, and then uh, all the sins that come after that or rebellions against him. This week we come to question 15, where we look at the particular sin that Adam and Eve committed when they fell. Let's recite this question. It's question 15. What was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? The sin whereby our first parents fell from the state wherein they were created was their eating the forbidden fruit. That was the point of departure from God, eating the forbidden fruit. That was how 
they rebelled against God. That was the way they went from being obedient to being lawless, from being servants of God to the slaves of sin, from being servants of righteousness to being servants to Satan. For our scripture reading, then I want to read again, as I mentioned earlier, Genesis 1, I mean Genesis 3, 1 through 8, because that's the place where we're given the account of the fall. So please listen as I read this to you. Actually, I'll begin a verse before that with Genesis 2.25. Okay, this is the word of the Lord, Genesis 2.25 and following. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. May God bless to us the reading of his holy and his infallible word. The first thing I want you to see as we look at this particular event, it tells us of the sin by which we fell, is that this is a historical event. There are a lot of people that feel that they are too sophisticated to take this as a literal event. They claim to see it as a mythological account, a fairy tale, a just-so story. In other words, something that didn't actually happen, but a story that helps to explain things in sort of a a parabolic way or whatever. Sometimes they take this approach because they believe the just-so stories of popular evolutionists who deny that man was created directly by God. Though they claim to be scientific, they tell the story that man is the result of millions and millions of years of progressive changes and accidents, starting out as primordial soup and having things fall together in such a way that life and all the complexities involved in forming a human being just happened. That's a remarkable just-so story. It's a ridiculous and absolutely unbelievable story is the best thing that they can come up with if they wish to reject the testimony of God's word that the first man and woman were created directly by the hand of God. But those who accept this story of evolution cannot accept that there was a man named Adam and a woman named Eve who were the parents of the whole human race who rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit, because it contradicts their just-so story of evolution. It contradicts it because there was no death, there was no sin, until 
Adam and Eve. And we're taught in the Bible that they were the first man and the first woman, not that there were a whole bunch of other um, people before them that or sort of creatures before them that evolved into the first man and woman. A second objection to the his, historicity of the account is with the story itself. I say, come on, you know, a talking serpent, how could that be? A forbidden tree, what, what is that about? Sounds like a fairy tale. The fall into sin brought about by eating a piece of fruit, what is that? They say, it sounds like a fairy tale to me. And those who have little more respect for the Bible would say that it is a myth given by inspiration of God to teach us, again, something like a parable that is meant not to be taken literally, but just to remind us that we're sinful. But I want you to see that the account of the eating forbidden fruit is not presented to us as a myth or a parable, but as a real historical event. First, the account itself is written in this way. When parables are told in Scripture, they are told as parables. But Genesis 3 reads as a history. Adam and Eve are clearly presented in chapter 2 as created directly by God. And we're given an account of the children that they had and how the earth was populated from them. All the way from Adam to Jesus Christ. We have genealogy. The ancients took their genealogies very, very seriously. As well they should have. And in them, they saw evidence of historical persons rather than mythological figures. Some of you may have heard of uh, some peoples that uh, missionaries had gone to that uh, they were presenting to them the things of the Lord and translating the Bible into their language. And they skipped over, in going starting with Matthew, the genealogies because they thought that, that would just be boring, reading a list of names and so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And so they uh, moved on into the narrative. And then later, uh, I forget the occasion that prompted it, but they went back to, to look at that first chapter. And when they presented that, all the people came to believe because they said, oh, we thought this was just stories that you were telling us. But now, seeing the genealogies, this is real history. And so it is that this is presented to us in the scriptures. Second, we see that the rest of the scripture treats this account as a historical reality. Jesus refers to Adam and Eve as being in the beginning, and he speaks of how God instituted marriage with them. And Paul speaks of Adam's transgression that brought sin into the world in his letter to Timothy. He refers to this account as history that has bearing still on us today. He says that one of the reasons women are not permitted to teach in the church is because the woman was formed second to the man. And another reason is because the woman was deceived by the serpent when she reversed uh, this order and acted apart from her husband's lead. 1 Timothy 2, 11-13 says, Let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into the transgression. There's a whole lot more we could say about that passage. But the main thing that I want you to see today is that Paul the Apostle clearly treats the the fall by eating the forbidden fruit as a historical account. So don't let anyone tell you that it's not a real event in history. He deals with it in Romans 12 as well, very much as a that this is where sin came from. This is where Christ came from. That's why it matters. It matters because if you reject this account, it, it obscures the whole history 
the, of, of God's saving work in which sin enters in by one man and righteousness is restored by another man, Christ Jesus. And besides that, if you do not have a fall, you destroy the biblical explanation for how sin entered the world and you have no explanation for the suffering that is in the world, that it was just something suffering and death was there from the get-go. It's very important for us to accept what God has said, what he has given to us as history, as history, and not to mythologize it. But why does God make such a big deal about eating a piece of forbidden fruit? The next thing I want to look at. It is treated as a big deal, isn't it? I mean, look at the punishment. Look at the consequences for eating a forbidden piece of forbidden fruit. Eve ate from the tree. Adam followed her. And they're driven from God's presence, from the garden of pleasure. They're sentenced to death, sentenced to cursing. All of their posterity is cut off from God and sentenced to the curse and to everlasting punishment in hell but for the promise of redemption. Doesn't this seem like an overreaction on God's part? I mean, just for taking a bite out of a piece of fruit that God had told them not to eat? It's like a parent kicking his child out of the house for getting into the cookie jar or something. Actually, though, the very fact that it was only a piece of fruit makes the offense all the more offensive. If you think about it in the right way, that's the problem. God has been super generous. He was super generous with with Adam and Eve, with us when he created us. He gave them a beautiful world and he furnished it with many excellent and beautiful things for them to use and enjoy. He even put them in a cultivated garden which he himself planted for them. He gave them dominion over all that he had made. They had mastery over the world. There were no storms, there were no diseases. There were no vicious animals. Instead, all the animals were friendly. They could work with them. You can imagine getting animals to help you to build things and do things. He made them in his very own image so that they might be a reflection of his wisdom, power, and goodness, especially of his love on a creaturely level. He, he gave them so much. He gave them each other, male and female, with the ability to bring forth more children that were like themselves. He gave them a very interesting and engaging task to fill the earth and to subdue it, to fill it with other image bearers like themselves and from the earth to produce things and to things that would be beautiful and that they could use to bless one another. He gave them communion with himself and he gave them the Sabbath, revealing to them his glory and his work and his will for them. He gave them all of this and just one prohibition. Just one tree, not to eat the fruit of one tree as a display of their loyalty to him, that he was their God and that he was their Lord. It was the only thing that was withheld from them. And for a mere piece of fruit, they rebelled against their maker. Yes, only a piece of fruit. For one trivial piece of fruit in the midst of a garden full of delights that God had given them, many of which they had probably not even experienced when they ate of the tree that was forbidden. The fact that it was the only piece of fruit 
that and it was only a piece of fruit is what makes it such a great offense. Why, for a piece of fruit, would you reject your whole relationship with God? If God had commanded them to do something extremely difficult, like die on a cross, their disobedience would have been at least more understandable. But all he did was prohibit one kind of fruit in the midst of a garden filled with all sorts of fruits. If God had simply not made this tree, they wouldn't have even missed this tree. There could have been other kinds of fruit potentially that he could have made that he didn't make. They didn't even know the difference. The only reason they had to have that tree was because God told them not to. They did not want God to rule over them. They did not want him in authority. The whole thing was a test to see if they would accept his authority. And they showed that they would not accept it. The very fact that it was only a piece of fruit doesn't excuse them. It makes them all the more inexcusable. The question we ought to ask is not why God made made such a big deal about eating a, a piece of fruit, but why they made such a big deal about eating a forbidden fruit, that they were willing to disobey God and to ruin their relationship with Him for themselves and their posterity. Now you can see in the account that this was an act of, of defiance. Total defiance. The serpent. We know more about him other places in the Bible. In Revelation 12, 9, it tells us very specifically that the serpent is Satan. And he appeals to their own judgment in disregard of God's authority and command. When you're deciding what to do about a situation, what's the first consideration you should have? What does my master, the eternal God, say about this? What is God's will? If it's something that displeases him or something that he has forbidden, then that should end the discussion right there. If he tells you to do something, you should never say, oh, but I could not do that. Like the rich young ruler did. If he's told you not to do something, you should never say, oh, but I must do that. I have to do that. God has spoken and he is to have the final word. He is God Almighty. He is the master. He is Lord of all. But you see that Satan appeals to Eve to look to her own desires, look to her own judgment about what she's going to do. He begins by raising the question in Genesis 3.1, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He wants to judge, judge for herself. And isn't that a little bit unreasonable? Like, What's wrong with that tree? What harm is in it? Was it not pleasant to the eyes and good for food? And you see the point is that it's irrelevant as to whether it should be eaten. It could be the best food in the garden. They didn't know, of course. It could be the best looking and the best tasting and, and, and the most nutritious and everything. That's not the point. God has prohibited, pro, prohibited it, and that was the reason it shouldn't be eaten. We didn't look at it and judge whether it was going to be good or not, whether it was good for food or not. God said, don't eat it. The woman declares rightly that God has said, you shall not eat it lest you die. The serpent contradicts. He says, you shall not surely die. It's thought by many that he himself was eating of the fruit, even as he said this, demonstrating that it was good to eat. Because in verse 6, we're told that the woman saw that the tree was good for food 
and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. To see that it was good for food must have meant that she saw him eating it and he didn't die. And to see that he was, did seem to be quite a, a wise sort of a, a creature. Um, must, must have been able to, uh, you know, he was, he was quite a, a clever fellow and, and he'd eaten this, uh, this fruit. He told her that he was enlightened by eating from it and that, that she would be too. Enlightened to know good and evil like God. To decide for himself what was good and evil rather than having to submit to God. She judges that it was good for food, which I suppose it was, and pleasant to the eyes, which I suppose it was too, and desirable to make one wise. And it was uh, it was in the sense that you would become like God, deciding what was good and evil for yourself instead of having him tell you. you you can you can be wise and so from her judgment this seemed like a good idea to be free to make her own decisions about things rather than to be bound by god's commands i'll decide what i want to do i'll decide what's good for me very familiar isn't it now you see what the woman does when she relies on her own judgment instead of obeying God. Verse 6 tells you in very quick sequence. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Very devastating consequence. Very quick action. That's how sin is. There it is. Look at it. Weigh it out. And bang. You do it. It can change your whole life. Sins that people commit in times of temptation ruin their whole life. One sin, one day, and it's all, it's all ruined. This was all the more ruinous. Sin, with its devastating consequences, happens very quickly without much consideration at all. So here is a complete shift in the entire order of all things. Now we, all mankind, would rely on our own judgment rather than following God's commandments. Last week we saw in 1 John 1, 3 that sin is lawlessness. It is defiance in which we live apart from God's rule. That's what happened. We went from obedience to lawlessness. Instead of being a people that live by His commandments, we live according to our judgment of what's good. Sin is defiance against our Maker, a rejection of Him as our God. Lawlessness. Earlier we read from 1 John 2, and there John calls us, calls living according to our own judgment about things, worldliness. In fact, he names the very things that motivated Eve to eat the forbidden fruit as loving the world rather than loving the Father. We're, in other words, choosing the world over the Heavenly Father. A world without God, with us in the world, not looking at the will of God. In 1 John two fifteen through 17 he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you see how that corresponds to Eve? She saw that it was good for food. That was the... Lust to the eyes. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. 
I'm sorry. The first one is the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good for, for food. That's the lust of the flesh. Then she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's what John calls the lust of the eyes. Then she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. That's what John calls the pride of life. I'll do what I want. I'll make my own choices. No one can tell me what to do. I am my own person. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What's wrong with getting drunk? What's wrong with getting stoned? Why should I not have sex with the one I love, even if I'm not married? Why should I obey my parents when I don't agree? Why do I go to, have to go to church when I don't get anything out of it? What's wrong with worshiping God in the way that I think is best? He should accept whatever I bring to him as long as it's sincere. This is now our default position because we're fallen human beings. We do not live according to God's commandments, but to our own judgment of good and evil. What pleases our flesh, what looks best to our eyes, and whatever we deem to be the best, that's the way that we take. Our own feelings, our own desires, our own prideful reason. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's our way instead of obedience to God. Ephesians describes this as being dead, Ephesians 2.1, dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. A whole shift. That became our way. How disordered our world was because of our fall into this wretched condition of sin by eating the forbidden fruit. Surely you can see why it was such a big deal to eat this fruit. It was turning of everything on its head. It was replacing commandment-keeping life with rebellious life. It was utter defiance. We are no longer in harmony with our God and with the world that God made. God responded by casting Adam and Eve out from his presence and from the garden of delights and by sentencing them and their posterity to death and the curse. We'll be looking at that more in detail later, but they were entirely unfit to live with God their maker because they were no longer committed to obeying his commandments. Sin cuts us off. It leaves us spiritually dead. It leaves us under wrath. So we'll look at that condition into which we fell in more detail in future studies. But for now... I just want you to see that by eating the forbidden fruit, we cut ourselves off from our maker. You know, that's what I want you to see for now, that we've cut ourselves off. That's, that's what we see today. And now I want to show you what Jesus does. It's wonderful. I want to show you in contrast with Adam what Jesus does. So first, let's contrast what Jesus did with what Adam did. I want to uh, do this because Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam, the one in the garden, failed and took us from paradise into the wretched condition of sin and misery. Whereas Jesus Christ, the second Adam, takes his elect people from sin and misery and brings them back to paradise at last. We look at Adam in the garden and we see that he was very passive. He's not even mentioned until verse 6 taking the forbidden fruit from his wife and eating it according to her example. 
What kind of leadership was this? He was appointed to lead. God had entrusted him with the responsibility to keep the garden, to guard the garden is the word really. He failed in two ways. First, he never should have allowed the serpent to counsel his wife with his worldly rebellious counsel. As soon as he saw what was going on, he should have killed the serpent or at least driven him out from the garden. And secondly, after Eve ate the fruit, he never should have followed her. Instead of eating with her, he should have rebuked her and come before God for mercy as a priest to intercede for her. He should have offered to bear her punishment. He should have said, punish me instead of her. That's what Adam should have done, but not what he did. He didn't. He meekly followed her, and he plunged the whole human race into sin. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is quite different from the first Adam. He does what Adam should have done. He comes to free us from Satan. He came into the world to destroy the devil and his works. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He delivers his people from the clutches of Satan, restoring us to service to God. By his word and spirit, he rebukes us, convincing us of our sin and setting us free from the deception of Satan. He enables us to see our defiance against God and how wrong it is. And then he calls us to repent, to turn from that way and come to him for life. He breaks the bond, the bondage that we have with Satan. He calls us to follow him and promises that he will give us eternal life. And that's what he does, breaking the power of sin as our deliverer, as our great high priest. He also came before the father as a spotless lamb, a man completely free of all sin. And he said, punish me instead of them. I offer myself for their sins. Let me bear their iniquities. In Mark 10, 45, he tells us that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He laid down his life for us. All of our iniquities were laid on him. He bore our transgressions and by his stripes we are set free. And you know what the father appointed him to do, uh, to do for this work that the father was pleased with him and that the father accepted him and what he did by going to the cross for our sins. He raised him from the dead to prove that his offering, by his offering, we're set free. And we're granted full remission of sins. Far from joining us in our transgression, though Satan tempted him, he went all out to tempt him, but far from joining us in our transgression the way Adam did, Jesus fully delivered us from it, both from its consequences and from its power. God's promise is that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life, life restored with communion with God in paradise, life completely free from the curse of God, life free of bondage to Satan to serve God in holiness and righteousness forever and ever. This new life begins as soon as you believe. As soon as you believe, you're freed from Satan's dominion to serve God. Not perfectly just yet, but as we saw last week, no longer in rebellion and defiance, but now in imperfect 
obedience. Obedience, though. And as soon as you believe, you will immediately receive complete forgiveness of sins. Jesus has borne the penalty of your defiance. And while you will be chastened in this life for your sins, you will still be subject to the sufferings of this world and even to death. You will not be under condemnation, though, but your sufferings will be used to reform you and to refine you. And then, when this life is over, you will enjoy the full benefits of Christ's salvation. All of you who believe, he restores you to paradise. First, at death, you will be perfected in your spirit so that you'll never sin again. And then, on the day of resurrection, Satan and all who are united with him in rebellion, who are living according to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, will be cast into the lake of fire. And we who who deserve to be cast in for our past sins will instead, by Jesus, be brought into paradise, where there will be no more curse, to live in sweet communion with God the Father and with God the Savior, Jesus Christ, and with God the Holy Spirit in a world of perfect love. We can't even imagine what it will be like, but our happiness will be complete and we will be wholly satisfied forever and ever in the presence of God. As it says in Revelation 22, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light from the, of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So where are you? Are you in rebellion, against the living in the first Adam, living under the dominion of sin, in defiance of God, in the lust of the flesh, in the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Or have you repented and come to Jesus Christ for eternal life? John makes it clear that, 1 John 2.15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, what's going to happen to it? He says it's not from the Father but from the world, and the world is passing away. And the lust of it, and he, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Have you been delivered from the world by Jesus Christ? the world that lives according to their own desires, you have been delivered to live in the will of God by Jesus Christ? Have you been delivered by the second Adam from this eating forbidden fruit defiance that Adam the first, the, the first Adam brought to us in order to live in paradise with the second Adam? That's the important question. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Our merciful and gracious God, how we praise you that there are two Adams. And the first Adam, he's the one that did not take the right way. He he followed the serpent. He went the way of the world, of living by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We thank you that Jesus Christ delivered us from that. That He is the second Adam and he came to restore us to you and to paradise so that we were brought back to live for you again. To live in harmony with our creator. In harmony with the world that you made. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have 
and for the restoration that is ours in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would we would serve one another and we would help one another to walk in this new life that you have given us. It's a wonderful life. And to no longer live by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and pride of life, but now to live for the will of God, for the glory of God. Father, you are worthy. You're worthy of all honor and glory. You are the Lord. You are the master. You are the creator. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, looking to you to continue that grace that you have begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.